0: Last week, I think uh, Tom mentioned that our kids were supposed to get married yesterday, but our son had COVID. And then um, Tuesday, his fiancé tested positive, and we had many phone calls back and forth with physicians to figure out what to do and see how she would fare, and yesterday we married them and uh, had a masked and amazingly beautiful wedding. They're both feeling great, and it was lovely, and it was at our home, so thank you for all your prayers. We had a lot of help to pull that off, and it was quite lovely. So let's pray. Jesus we thank you for your goodness to us in this crazy season. We thank you that when we turn to you, you're there, oh God. Help us to experience your presence and your goodness with us this morning. We love you, God. Amen. Amen. Well, our church, um, as is obvious, has always been largely white. Um, But over the years, we've had more um, and sometimes less people of color attending. And probably about 10, could be 12 years ago now, I found myself wanting to understand Better issues of uh, diversity. And this would have been before Black Lives Matter happened, at least in earnest. And my desire, I think, would have uh, better mapped onto white evangelical push at that time to have more diversity um, in their churches. Back then, I knew very little about power or or privilege or racial dynamics beyond um, broad strokes. And if somebody would have said, well, 80, you actually have a lot of privilege, I would have thought, well, you've got to kid- be kidding me because I grew up Jewish um, and understand all kinds of stuff about anti-Semitism. And in the pastoring world, it can be fairly brutal being a woman pastor so I might have said what privilege Uh, privilege I've worked hard for this I've overcome a lot I would have not understood my enormous privilege as a white person well there was a woman at our church at that time who I was really close to and um, she was a woman of color and understood a lot about um, diversity and inclusion and equity. um, And I asked her, can you help me to understand better, um, kind of like how to make our church, Um, I don't even know if I would have used the word, the language of anti-racist in those days, but maybe I would have said, how can we make it more welcoming um, for people who aren't white? Now, to be honest, I Um, had no idea what I was asking this woman. I had no idea what the cost to her was. I had no idea how much I didn't get at that time. I had no idea how much I lacked the capacity to get what I didn't get at that time. And I believed that I was doing the right thing for the right reasons, And in the end, no matter how hard this friend tried to help me see in the if-only-we-had-eyes-to-see kind of way, I still couldn't see. And here's the thing, and it's pretty sad, my friend tried really, really hard, and I still couldn't get it. And that's the bottom line. The bottom line was I didn't get it, and it would take me some number of years to really begin to understand. The whole letter of the, uh, to the Corinthians that Paul wrote to the Corinthians can be summed up by Paul saying, you guys are not getting it. Like You guys need to grow up. I'm trying really hard to help you become good people, good followers of God, and you're not getting it at all. 1 Corinthians 3, it opens up with Paul saying, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready for it. I used to hear Paul's words as really harsh criticism, and I would think, I would never say something like that to somebody. And I can understand why those words could feel harsh to someone. But if I think about it, and I think about my friend, I think this would have been her experience. I think she was saying, "Ade, I'm trying to give you solid food. And you can only handle milk. And to be clear, I wanted to be able to have solid food. Like, I perceived myself as someone who was able to have solid food. It seems like a good thing to be able to have solid food. And many of my, maybe in many areas of my life, that was true. But here's the thing I was as mature as I was, or if we use the language of capacity. I had the capacity that I had, and that is true for all of us. At every minute, we're never as mature as we want to be, right? Because we want to be really, really, really mature. Like, that makes sense. But we are as mature as we are. We have the capacity that we have. So we use words like grow, or mature, or evolve, We apply them to individuals. We apply them to systems or organizations. And there are people, there are theorists who have spent time describing the arc of growing or maturing or evolving or created models that look at that. And I have found these descriptions and these models, um, while never perfect, um, always meaningful, always helpful. So this is a quote from one scholar. Human nature is not fixed, and humans are able, when forced by circumstances, to adapt to their environment by constructing new, more complex conceptual models of the world that allow them to handle new new problems. So in other words, over time and with a lot of work I was able to hold the complexities of race and power and privilege and concepts like intersectionality which means I am Jewish and I am a pastor and I am a woman and I am white all which demand that you and I walk away from our binaries or more concrete ways of understanding to more complex ways of navigating life. Well, Brian McLaren, who some of you are familiar with, ah, I got my water and I didn't. I made it as far as the seat. Thank you. I love giving him opportunities to serve me. (laughs) It's like this skill that I've honed over like 30-some years of marriage at random moments like that. And it it just works, and it's healthy for us. (laughs) So McLaren wrote a book called Faith After Doubt, and in it he postulates um, four stages of faith. And I recently participated in a small group discussion where we talked about these four stages, and it turned out to be this really amazing, robust um, conversation. So this morning, I want to look really briefly at McLaren's stages and ask how that maps onto Paul's language of milk and solids in general, and Paul's pastoral invitation uh, to the Corinthians to grow up. And then see what our invitation could be. So McLaren stages look like this. I think they're fun. Um, Number one, stage one, would be simplicity or what he calls dualistic. So this stage is right or wrong, good or bad, in or out, right? There is a correct answer for everything. And generally, if you're in this stage and you disagree with me, well, since... I have the correct answer. You're kind of my enemy. So faith for us in this stage would be about correct beliefs. If we want to be a good Christian, we're going to have correct beliefs. So in some ways, you can think of me asking my friend, just tell me how to think. Like, she can do that. Just tell me how to think to be a good anti-racist. Come on, I'm giving you five minutes here. Like, help me out. Right? Give me the right answer So you could think of that as a a stage one approach. Now, she wasn't responding in a stage one way. She was responding with all kinds of complexity. Um, McLaren calls his stage two complexity. And complexity is more about fruitfulness. So not so much who's right or who's wrong. This... uh, certainly gets closer to who we are at sanctuary. Like we quote Jesus often saying you'll know them by their fruit or a good tree uh, bears good fruit and so on. And McLaren tells this story. So he says he grew up in a fundamentalist sect and everything was, there's right or wrong and a right way to believe and one right way and that sect knew the right way and that's why they were saved and going to heaven. And he talks about going away to university and joining a campus group, and he says like, he he went to his uh, Christian campus group leader and said, can you help me interpret this passage? Some passage in the Bible, And said, well, Brian, like as far as I know, I think there's at least four interpretations to this passage. And Brian said, okay. And then the, the leader tells them all four, and Brian says, which one's right? And the leader said, I, I don't know. What do you think? And he just describes his mind being blown at that moment. So it's ink complexity that we begin to question some of our beliefs and our assumptions. So, like, maybe the Bible doesn't have to be literal. Or maybe my perception of God could be more nuanced. Or maybe questions about race and, and gender and sexuality are actually core to our faith. Stage three for McLaren is called perplexity. And here's where things get uh, a little interesting. Instead of adapting or tweaking, like just questioning um, the systems that we're part of, we ask in stage three, am I even asking the right questions? anymore. In stage three, people care more about honesty, integrity, authenticity. They would say everyone's opinion matters. So good people in stage three are just honest about the real questions that they have. I think my experience with this friend thrust me into a stage three season because I began questioning my questions and i began questioning my own motivations with regard to uh, race and i began questioning the, uh, the assumptions of the church at large, and I began questioning our looking at our own practices at sanctuary more closely. And I started understanding, wait, there's something called whiteness? Wait, I'm white, and that has meaning? And if I want to understand anything, I have to understand what it means that I'm white. In this stage, I could finally admit how much I didn't know how lost I actually was, and that is liberating. All of my years of uh, discipleship or um, training or mentoring that I'd received and a lot of degrees that I've earned and I could not get what this friend was trying to give me that I asked for in the first place. Stage three is our house of cards moment. It's I'm not sure what's real anymore moment. Some people might walk away from church for a season, maybe permanently in this moment, or any organization or institution, some from faith altogether. It is messy when we are so disillusioned in life. It's messy when things fall apart. We have this image of Jesus kind of going crazy in the temple and he's whipping people with his cords and he's overturning the tables and he's causing mayhem. And I think that's the image of what my internal world felt like in this season, like I can't tell what's up and what's down at this moment. Richard Rohr calls it disorientation, so orientation, disorientation, reorientation would be his stages. That said, stage three is super important because if we are faithful to do the hard work we're invited to do in stage three with the stuff that's real that comes up for us, it can lead in this model to stage four, McLaren calls harmony. The last stage in most of these models is some kind of like enlightenment, think Maslow, um, or love, or uh, mysticism. And in this stage, the duality um, of stage one is gone. There is no us or them anymore. Um, Someone said in the discussion group I had when we uh, uh, talked about all this, Um, that they said, stage four must be aspirational. And at the very least, I would argue that few people are able to live in that space all the time. In stage four, we do away with duality, so no in, no out, no us, no them, we are all we. Mutuality and interdependence are the key words of the stage, if you're asking yourself, where do you exist on this spectrum? There's no heroes. There's no monsters. In McLaren, stage four, God is knowable and still mysterious. God's present and transcendent, just and merciful. When we look at the mystics, of old or contemporary mystics, we think stage four, and that's what in fact compels us to them. So Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians as one who planted or started um, that church and then moved on, so we could call him today a founding pastor. So he was deeply connected and concerned for this congregation. But if we are picturing a post Pentecostal moment where the followers of Jesus are sharing their resources and and caring for those in need and everything is going like swimmingly well because people have encountered Jesus, think again. The letter to the Corinthians is Paul's contending with every possible issue that could arise in human community. The letter starts out by saying there's fighting over who to follow. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos, Another, I follow Cephas or Peter. Another, still, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I can honestly hear my friend trying to help me get these things about race when Paul is trying to get, like, you can hear the frustration, like, what are you even talking about? Uh, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. So you can kind of picture this, my dad is better than your dad argument on the playground. And throughout the rest of the letter, Paul calls the Corinthians arrogant, unspiritual, foolish, childish, and quarrelsome. Then in chapter 5, it hits a crescendo. It's actually reported to me that there's sexual, sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud of it. Sounds bad. (laughs) By the end of the letter, we have people getting drunk off of the communion wine, which is what I felt like doing by the time I got to the end of the letter. (laughs) When... Paul says, I want to give you meat, but you can only handle milk. He's saying, I long to talk to you about the mysteries of the faith. Like, I want to understand with you what it means to become one with God. I want to ponder God's nature, or maybe on a more concrete level, I want to understand what fig tree I'm cursing, or who I'm whipping in the temple, or who are today's whitewashed tombs, or what is the condition of my own heart? Paul's frustrated because all he can do is offer some stage one rules to this out-of-control community. If he knew McLaren stages, maybe he'd say, I want to offer you complexity. I want you to learn to question and to think for yourselves. I I want you to know the expansiveness of God. And you, you can hear this a little bit in his letter to the Colossians, where he's in a completely different space. Since then, Paul says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above not on earthly things. I've heard this taught in kind of more legalistic or maybe simplistic ways, like don't think about worldly things, read your Bible and have a good quiet time. But I think Paul's saying there's something so much more to our faith. Like He's struggling like a poet might struggle to say this world that God has created it's cosmos, like, it's amazing. And we, like, we humans that God created, we're amazing. And we're invited to contemplate all that it means to be part of it, what it means to find God in all of life, what it means to be present to God in every moment. Ellie Alberhaske, I looked over there because she must be with our young people now. She's usually sitting there. But Ellie serves our junior high and our high school kids, and I listen to her um, talk about her plans for her classes. And she'll take the kids, she gets them out in nature, she'll take moments of silence with them where they're just listening, and just hearing what they hear outside in the water, the bugs, the birds, the wind in the trees. And then she asks them provocative questions, like loving these kids exactly where they're at, but inviting them into greater awareness of God in their midst. So the question this morning is, what do McLaren's stages and Paul's longings to give the followers of Jesus solid food invite us or say to us this morning? I have three things. The first is we admit that just because we're followers, Of Jesus or just because we call ourselves Christian, we can still be really messed up people and we can do a lot of harm. It's easy to judge those crazy Corinthians, but the truth is we all have some Corinthian in us. I loved my pastor when I was in the vineyard, and I was a young woman. I loved him a lot, and I learned a ton from this guy, and I grew a lot under his leadership, but I remember as a young woman needing to believe that he was better than all the other vineyard pastors, And, and I really thought that our vineyard church was better than all the other vineyard churches, and all of that made me very special. Encountering God does not equal maturing. I listened to a a lecture once on meditation, and the guy said something. He was talking about spiritual pride, and he says, like, I don't care if you meditate four hours a day. I don't care if you meditate eight hours a day. Like, you can have transcendent, amazing experiences, and you can still be a jerk. Believing in God isn't what matures us. It's walking out the life we feel compelled to walk as people of faith that matures us. As part of my faith, I deal with my addictive tendencies. As part of my faith, I contend with my bigotry. As part of my faith, I face my inner demons or my shadow, and I become a more integrated or whole person. Number two, we understand how important wrestling is to our growth or our evolving. When you're in stage one, like we're invited, begin to wrestle with those binaries because it's important. If you're in stage two, it's helpful to ask lots of questions. Those questions are great about the institutions, the organizations, the churches, the systems you're part of. If if we're in stage three, we're invited to rethink our questions, to examine, is this system something that can be saved? And what does it mean if I think the answer is no? We're invited to have our house of card moments. As Christians, we have Jacob, one of the parents of the faith who's wrestling with God, and he's wrestling with God, honestly, because he's a mess of a person, because he's used people, because he's exploited people his whole life. He's wrestling with God. He accomplishes what he's needed to do, and he's left with a limp. We don't grow without pain or discomfort. Oh my gosh, I was so miserable. And that whole time of trying to figure out why I couldn't get what my friend was trying to give me, how I could hurt someone so much who was trying so hard to help me and give me a gift. I mean, it is hard for us to grow um, and to evolve and to stay present to these harder questions and to sit with hard realities and with our limitations and all that we're disillusioned by that give us a chance then to expand and to go deeper and to become people whose love is deep and discerning. And finally, number three, we just understand that evolving is good, right? Paul says, grow up. In other words, Deal with your stuff, he says to us. We would say, get our healing, contend with our addictions. You know, when we think of addictions, we don't just think of like like a drug addiction. Um, Addiction experts would say most of us have some addictive things that we're dealing with. But addiction specialists specifically will say that having an addiction precludes our growth. It stunts our growth or our evolution, and uh, part of that is because our life can organize around our addiction, and part of it is our addiction, Tom was really helpful with me with this, but our addiction, whatever we're doing, uh, serves us so that we don't need to face the thing that's hard, because instead we have this way of escaping in many institutions, there's language to discourage growth, which I just find staggering. And in my old world, words like backsliding, I don't know if any of you have heard that expression, but that's applied when someone questions the status quo of faith. And the implication is that the container that we're in no longer works for you. If, if the container you're in no longer works for you, then you must be going backwards because there is no forward. Right? And that can make the process of evolving confusing and hard. And maybe that's okay, because I think the harder the work, the more we. Stand to grow. But the truth is you and I made in the image of God are made for evolving. Like I promise you that there is always a forward for us. We've obviously not arrived. We are simply as wise, as mystical, as mature, as healed as we are at any moment. That's all we can claim. That is why we always uh, look toward heaven. So I'll end with this. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put childish ways behind me. And that is our invitation from God to put childish ways behind us, to do what it takes to face our stuff, to stay present to what's hard, to admit where we're stuck in dualistic thinking, to become people who are comfortable asking hard questions, acknowledge that some of the systems we're uh, part of may not be salvageable in the end, and ask what that means for us. We reflect on our own fruitfulness, asking hard questions of ourselves, We reflect on our capacity to love. The ruach, spirit of God who hovers over the earth, invites us always to go deeper. So Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for that, that from the second we're born, we are created to evolve to mature, and to grow. And that, that's just the way it works. We can stop anywhere along the line. Like, you let us. It's possible. We can even go backwards. But there's this constant, continual, loving, incredible tug from the Holy Spirit every second of our lives. Inviting us to Go forward. We look toward heaven, God. We ask Jesus that you would be with us as we transition uh, into communion. We thank you for your body broken for us, for your blood shed for us. Oh God. Amen.